Would you turn with me to John chapter 2? John chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, we'd invite you to take a Bible that's in front of you and have it if you don't own one. You will find it in page, on page 834, 887, 834, 887, John chapter 2, we're going to take verses 1 through 11, somewhat famous story, Jesus changes or turns the water, the water into wine. If you ask me to do your wedding, most likely I will begin with these words, dearly beloved in the presence of God or on behalf of the Kirschman and the Schmidt family, I will welcome you to the celebration of this Christian marriage. We have come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and woman in holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation And our Lord Jesus adorned this manner of life in his presence at the first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. This first miracle, or as John calls it, sign in the text this morning, John chapter 2. Verse 11 that we're going to read here in just a minute, John 2 verse 11, refers to Jesus' first sign where he manifested his glory. And one literary scholar who's not even a Christian, who under, under, researches ancient literature, said this about this. If you were to invent a biography of Jesus Christ, and that's what some people say, John is an invented biography. It didn't really happen. If you were to invent a biography of Jesus Christ, who would invent... That his first and inaugural sign that's supposed to be symbolic of his career was a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment. And the answer is nobody would make that up. And the reason is that John didn't make it up. It really happened. But is this story more than a, a neat snapshot of Jesus at a wedding using his superpowers. Let's look at these verses, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, that's the third day from the chapter before where it says that he was with Nathaniel. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. If you remember, he has some disciples now, Andrew, Simon, Philip, Nathaniel, and the other disciple. It says that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's not a rude, but it was a pretty abrupt statement in the form of kind of a rebuke. His mother said to the servants in response to Jesus saying that, And he gave, the the mother of Jesus gave the best advice you could ever give to somebody. Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there from the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, 
filled the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some, some out and take it to the master of the feasts. Dip your pitcher into those water jars, bring it to the master of feasts. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now had become, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. But of course, the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely or are filled with wine or drunk, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. These are God's words. May we take them to heart this morning. Let's examine this story for a few minutes and look, and I want to do that by looking at four points with an emphasis on the last. And my four, four points are all centered around that word wine because that is a central idea or concept. Jesus turns water into wine. We see the problem of no wine. We see the pursuit of more wine. We see the provision of good wine and a lot of good wine. And the person, I'm going to say, the person who is the wine. So before we do that, though, I want to do something I normally don't do, and that is say something about wine, about alcohol. It's coming up, it'll keep coming up in this chapter. It presumes this question, and it is sometimes very controversial. Let me say this at first, this wine that's mentioned in John chapter 2 is not grape juice. The culture, the culture in Israel was a wine or vineyard culture. The wine quickly fermented, and there was a little doubt that wine in a wedding was always fermented. Add to that that it says at the end of this passage that when they, drunk, when they have drunk freely, literally that word it has to do with they were filled with wine, intoxicated somewhat. Doesn't mean that Jesus was intoxicated. It, it, he was not. It just means that this is wine. Now, wine in Jesus' day in the Bible times was almost always diluted for drinking so that it was much smaller alcoholic content, sometimes up to 10 times diluted. So it was just a very small content of alcohol, but it was still there. Wine was a mark in the Bible of celebration and joyful blessing from God. Israel, Israelites saw it as a gift of God. The Psalms in Psalm 104 says, He giveth us wine to make the heart glad. As he goes phrase after phrase over God's blessing to the earth. In Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, it says that those who give of their wealth, God provides them and their, their vats of wines will be overflowing. The lack of wine in the Bible, like Deuteronomy 28, is a sign of a curse from God. He will dry up your vineyards. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says that the, the drinking and the celebration with wine and drink 
marks a symbol of the coming of the Messiah. God instructed as a part in in Deuteronomy chapter 14, as a part of the tithes and offerings of God's people, that among many things, that they would take the things that their heart desires, including great wine, in order to enjoy and celebrate and rejoice, not get drunk, but to rejoice in the Lord with all their heart. Add that, add that to the fact that Jesus here will produce about 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine that the world has ever heard or seen or tasted. That is calculated to be about 600 to 900 bottles worth. And yet, and yet, I want to say to you, though the Bible does not forbid the drinking of alcohol or wine, it warns in many ways. First of all, it forbids all forms of drunkenness. You're not allowed to... Christian, God's people were, were never, are not... It's a sin to be drunk in any type of way. The Bible warns against the abuse of alcohol in the book of Proverbs. It warns leaders not to be given to wine and kings not to give themselves to wine. Alcohol has been greatly abused. And many families have been devastated by men and women who have been controlled by wine or alcohol. And so has sex, another gift from God, been abused by mankind and have ruined and hurt other people. All gifts from God. Wine is a gift from God. Sex is a gift from God. Other things are gifts from God, and they're used by sinful people with sinful hearts to do horrible things. The Bible says that to elders and deacons, elders, you must not be drunkards. Deacons are not to be given to much wine. As R.C. Sproul says, the Bible is manifestly clear that our Lord made wine and drank wine. And I don't think there's a word in the Bible that teaches it's sin to drink wine. It's certainly sinful to get drunk. But the possibility of abuse does not require disuse. However, I recognize that some people are absolutely convinced it's wrong. And I grant that they should not drink wine if you're convinced it's wrong. Because they believe it would be wrong. If you've been taught all your life that Jesus made grape juice rather than wine, and if you're convinced that that was the case, and that it would be a sin for your lips to touch wine, then for you to drink wine, it would be a sin. The Apostle Paul says that, refers to that, or implies that in Romans 14 and in, verse, and in 1 Corinthians 8. And he taught that if someone is convicted that an action is sinful, even though it's not, he actually sins if he takes that action. It's not because the New Testament presents a relativistic ethic, like it just all depends. It's simply that whatever is not in faith, done in faith to God, God, I want to tr- do this as I'm trusting in you, is sin. It's wrong to act against one's conscience, and if the action is not opposed to God, even if the action is not opposed to God's law. One, I'm almost done in this parenthesis. 
C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, it may be a duty of a particular Christian or any other Christian at a particular time to abstain from any strong drink, either because that sort of, he's a sort of a man who cannot drink at all without drinking too much or because he is with people who are inclined to drunkenness and must not encourage them by drinking himself. But the whole point is that he is abstaining for good reason from something which he does not condemn and which he likes to see other people enjoying. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing without wanting everyone else to give it up. That's not the Christian way. We must be gracious and wise, and I believe this church has been gracious and wise, not flaunting our liberty and for one, into one another that has a different view and not being judgmental to someone that has a different view. We must not just say with strong drink or alcohol or, or wine, I can do it, I'm free. We must say, how can I do it to the glory of God? And if I can't, I won't. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay. That's not what the point of the sermon is about. And that's not the point of the text. It just, it stares us in the eye of American Christianity where some segments of American Christianity said all alcohol is bad and some segments of Christianity have said, what are you talking about? And we live in an American society that abuses alcohol constantly. So does the world. Okay, back to the passage in hand. We have a problem There was no wine. It had run out, it says in these verses. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus comes to Jesus and says to him, they have no wine. This is a big problem in this society. For you to have a host wedding and not to have wine would be a great disgrace to your family and to everyone else there. They would look down on you and say, that is a shameful thing. You are not providing an appropriate spread that expresses the joyous occasion of this wedding. It was a great shame as it is not just a social embarrassment. It, was, it could have even brought a lawsuit, believe it or not, to the family that you have dishonored your family. It was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide a, an adequate celebration. And guys, this was not a couple hour celebration at a hall that you rent or a church basement or a church fellowship hall. In Israel's time, during this time in Israel, they would have wedding celebrations that would often go a whole week. Imagine that. So you come and bring your tent because you're from out of town, and you come and you celebrate day after day after day. So sometime in the middle of this wedding celebration, they run out of wine. It is a great embarrassment. It is a great shame. They had a great need. Now, we could just stop and reflect in almost all of the stories that we're going to now see of Jesus doing miracles, because we do see a miracle here. Jesus regularly is running into problems. This is a different kind of problem, and here there's just there's no wine for this wedding feast. That's, it seems interesting. It's so different than all the other ones. We have other ones like there's someone blind. That makes sense. Heal the blind. Someone lame, heal the lame. He's dead, he raised the dead. He'll solve it. You have no food for 5,000, no problem, he handles it. The wedding had run out of wine, 
And, and if, we, if we think and go deeper in this story and really reflect in the chapters before and the chapters after, as we start to see Jesus coming onto the scene of, a, of Jewish leaders who are resisting him and a people who had known the law for, for years and years and centuries and centuries and had turned away from God and come back to God, we could really actually hear this message that Israel was, had run out of wine. They had run out of life. They had gone after some other things, and here Jesus is on the scene, and just like in John chapter 1 in the prologue, it says, in the law, Moses, through the law came, Moses brought the law, but grace and truth came to Jesus through Jesus Christ. Jesus is on the scene here, and he comes to this need, and they were without a wine, and in our lives, it's not that we have a social embarrassment of no wine for our wedding feasts, but we are filled with shame, and rightfully so, in many areas of our lives. You and I have a great need. It's because of sin in this world and sin in our own hearts. And you and I find ourselves in even a far worse situation than these, this, this young teenage couple because they were probably teenagers when they got married, which was typical in that culture. You and I have a situation worse than that, a bad situation that has left us in far greater shame, shame that you and I deserve, shame that just like Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they appeared before God and they hid themselves because they were naked and ashamed. They were fully exposed to God's presence, and so are we. We are a mess. We're broken and needy. Do you feel that? Do you feel your need apart from God's covering in grace and rescue that you're in, you're in a place that's bad? If you're here this morning and you have never received Christ and having believed on his name, you are in a place of great shame even if you don't feel that way. And someday you will, we all will, if we do not have a covering or a solution to, to our problem God allowed, God's in control of everything. God allowed for this wedding couple to run out of wine for a purpose. And God allows you and I to find ourselves at wit's end, at a place where we're just, we throw up our hands and say, I can't do it. Things are bad. I'm a mess. I'm broken. No, I pray that God would do that for us if he hasn't done that already so that we would find the right and true solution. We find the second point I just want you to see is there's a pursuit of wine. We, we see it here in the story. It's Mary. She, she's not even called that by name in the story. She's just called the, the mother of Jesus. Mary goes to Jesus and says to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus says something rather puzzling when he looks at her and says, he says something puzzling to her. What does this have to do with me, woman? My hour has not come. And we find Mary, she responds to that by going to the servants and says, see that guy? See my son? Do whatever he asks. I made this point when I did the wedding this summer for Mary, Nathan uh, Schmidt, in July, 
And I preached this message a little different way. And I said to Mary and Nate, I'm sure they were listening because they were so focused on my sermon during the wedding. (laughs) And I said to them, Nathan and Mary, what do you do with the problems in your home and in your marriage in the future? Do what Mary did. Bring them to Jesus. And I do want to say to you, what do you do when you have problems? You bring them to Jesus. Jesus got, Mary got that right. Mary does not yet understand fully what Jesus is about to do. We know that Jesus, Mary had a miraculous birth. of the, She was a virgin when Jesus was born. She knew this was a special child. She had seen a son that had never sinned. Can you imagine that? By this time, Mary is probably a widow. Most scholars believe that because otherwise Joseph would have been with Mary. Jesus is called a carpenter, and Jesus already, so he had been doing carpentry trade, and my guess is Mary had got so used to now relying on her faithful son year after year to take care of her, and so it would be very natural at, in multiple levels for her when there's a problem to say, Jesus, what, what can we do? I don't believe because of other passages where Mary actually doubts yet what Jesus is really about, that Jesus, Mary expected this to happen. I don't know if she knew what was going to happen. But Mary knew Jesus to be the most godly man she had ever met. And she comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Friends, if you have trouble, tell it to Jesus. Faith Church. Let us go to Jesus. Let us cast our burdens onto him. Go to him. He is not your servant. He is not the genie in the bottle or a vending machine doing the things that you want him to do. No, he is Lord. He is king. Yet he is a gentle and lowly, he describes himself, one who has welcomed us has invited us to come to him, and he says, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. And he taught us to do that while surrendering to his will. You find in the story, the third thing I want you to see is the provision of good wine. The provision of good wine. I mean, that's, that's the point. We find that's the big heart of this miracle. There's no wine. They, go, they pursue wine. And Jesus provides it. Let's read the portion. Look with me at verse 6 and following. There were six stone water jars there. For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 and 30 gallons. Now, guys, these are these big these stone jars that were used in order to seek to fulfill the Old Testament law. And they would these clean Jews would come to this place after traveling and they would at least wash their hands and their feet because they wanted to follow ceremonial regulations in order to be clean before God. And he says, those things used for that purification stuff, I want you to go get them and I want you to fill them again with water. And they fill them with water. And it says in verse 8, he said to them, now draw some and take it out to the master of the feast. The master of the feast was this master of ceremonies, either a friend of the family, somebody hired. His job was to make sure the party was a great party. The groom had enough on his mind. The master of the party, the master of the service or feast was in charge of making sure everything ran smoothly. Everything was ordered. The bridegroom was in charge of providing for it. The master of the feast made sure. And so He says, take it to him. 
So they took it to him. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. They, they saw Jesus do it. They saw Jesus give this command. They knew this wasn't some wine source they brought in in the back alley and they had more in reserve. They knew that they had nothing of a sort. This was nothing but an amazing miracle. And it says that the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, basically. In my experiences, everybody brings out the best and then when they're, they've, drunk freely, and their senses are a little duller, and they're just not in the place of enjoying it, and they're, they're full, then they give the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. What does Jesus do? He does a miracle. He provides. He turns water into wine. He did, he's going to do that in the chapters ahead when he takes bread, a few loaves of bread and fishes, and he multiplies it for 5,000 men. It's more than this, though. Jesus provides for this bridegroom and makes sure that there's plenty of wine as a picture of something much deeper. He provides quantity and quality. And you can take that and remind yourself, Jesus does provide. He says to ask and we receive. But the last main point, and this is where I want to end with, but I want to, I want to kind of focus on for a minute, and I want to focus on the whole point of this parable, or not parable, this is a real story, the story of Jesus, the first sign, is I, want to, I call it this, the person who is the wine. The person who is the wine. Remember I said in chapter one that the point of John is that we would see and we would savor Jesus Christ. It is not just to collect a bunch of amazing story, miracle stories. It is for us to gaze upon a person and then gazing upon a person and the things he really did. He actually did this in real time in history that our hearts would be spiritually moved and melted because this record of John is not merely a record scribed by a few eyewitnesses or people that elaborated and made up their own stories. This is from God himself through these men and it is by the Holy Spirit and he intends to transform us as we look at Jesus himself. And I want to say Jesus, I I call this last point the person who is the wine is because that is the point of this story is Jesus. Who is Jesus identified in this story? Look, look with me here. He is, he's called a rabbi. He's a rabbi with his disciples. It says he came and he was invited with his disciples. And he's a guest at the wedding. And he's a son as his mother comes to him and says to his son, her son, they have no wine. And he's also a type of a bridegroom who supplies wine for the feast because it's not the other, the, the bridegroom that was there, it was Jesus that does it. Just like the bread that Jesus multiplied in John 6, we'll get there eventually, Lord willing. Jesus looked at the, the crowds and he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread. You must eat of me. Come to me and receive me. Not, not physical bread. I just made you bread. But I want you to see that I am the real bread of life. And though he didn't say that, he didn't say, I am the wine from heaven. 
I think we can hear him, and we are meant to reflect on this and say, Jesus is the true wine from heaven. But what did wine symbolize in that time? It symbolized a type of joy, a joyous blessing from God. Jesus isn't, though, just the bringer or the supplier of that joy. He is the joy himself. It's all found in him. And friends, we know this in our heads, but oh, I pray that our hearts would know this. The, the, the end of our needs are, are found in a relationship with him. They're not just found because when you get into a relationship with him, he'll give you what you want. It's because when you have a relationship with you, find that he is all that you were ever meant to want. You don't need anything else. It's all found in him. If wine is required for a party and a feast, Jesus is the true wine. No party in this life. There is no party, true party, in this life without the presence of Christ. There is not a rejoicing without the centrality of Jesus. So I want to end by, and they're in your notes, but oh, I I pray that you'll hear these from from God's word and you'll hear them from your heart and and your hearts will ring with a yes, yes, yes. Four things about this in conclusion. Number one, Jesus brings true festive joy to his people. Jesus brings true festive joy to this people. Guys, this is the first, verse seven says it's the first sign. Is it fitting? Yes, it is. Jesus could have chosen his first inaugural sign. A first sign isn't, oh, this is convenient, I'm just gonna do that. I think his first sign was, I'm gonna do this, and God in his providence was gonna allow this to be very symbolic, about what he was all about. He could have raised somebody from the dead because he's going to be the one that raises people from the dead. He could have healed the blind because he surely does heal us who are spiritually blind. He could have taken dead legs and made them healed. Those could all be good cases for an inaugural first sign in order to mark this is what I'm about. He chose to do something different. Jesus chose to show up at a wedding party that was about to die because of no wine and make it the best party ever. What could that mean but to say that Jesus came into this world to bring true festive joy to his people? Jesus is going to say this over and over again in different ways. He says in John chapter 10, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundant. I'll tell you what, people that go to parties and get drunk People that go in from nightclubs to nightclubs or they just go from relationships to relationships. What You just name whatever it is. Some of those things are really good, but they go to those things. They are seeking life and they're seeking it to an abundance. And Jesus says, no, I am on the scene and I change everything. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. Je- The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus came, brought grace upon grace to this world, and he has come so that we could, like we do at Christmas, say, and and mean it, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king Christianity is a call, like I said last Sunday, to self-denial 
and self-deflecting. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. If I have to die for Christ, I will die for Christ. That's what he calls us to do. He calls us to sacrifice, give up things. But that sacrifice and self-denial is never an end in itself. The self-denial that we give up is nothing in comparison to the glory and the rewards and the joy that are offered to us. And it's not just in the future. Because by His Holy Spirit, He comes into our lives and He starts to transform us. Jesus said to the woman at the well, two chapters later, He says to this really wicked, adulterous woman who had been with many, many husbands... Not her own. She would have been seeking after her own. She was always trying to find life and joy elsewhere. And Jesus says, woman, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't just ask me. You would, you would ask for me for water, a living water that would, that would go and overflow in your soul that would never well up and never run dry. That is what I am bringing. I am the bread of life. I am the true water. I am the true one, and oh, may we be a people that seek him in his word, seek to know him because he is one. Joy is coming, joy is started here, but joy, joy is primarily coming, and oh, may we rejoice to know this king. Do you view him that way? Do you view Jesus as one who is just a killjoy, just telling me, I gotta, I, help me get to heaven, that's good. But boy, life is going to stink obeying him for the rest of my life. No. It is, it is, he is this bridegroom bringing joy and he is the wine of life. Secondly, I want you to see this. Not only is he the one that has and will bring festive joy, his power, the power of Jesus is unfathomable. I, I don't want us to miss this as you reflect on this miracle. It is a miracle. He changed water, H2O, into wine. And he made it really good and he made a lot of it. He was the one who changed the Nile River into blood and then back again in Exodus. He changed a stick into a serpent and he can't... And, a few mo- and he took a few pieces of bread and turned it into 5,000. A stadium could be filled and eat all of the food he provided. Friends, Jesus' power is unfathomable. It's immeasurable. He upholds the universe with the, pi- the power of his word. And Jesus, at, at any time, can speak into our lives and change anything. If you're a Christian here today, if you believe in him, it's because he did a miracle in your heart that was spiritually dead because of the fall and your own sin and he gave you life and he spoke life into you and someday someday very soon he will come someday very soon he will resurrect the dead with his word someday soon we find story after story of Jesus' power is immeasurable he is so great that he can take care of your problems in life if he thinks it's best to take care of them and remove them. He can, his power is so great that if he's with you, that's all you need in that relation, your relationships right now, those hard ones with your spouse. In your workplace where it's really frustrating and difficult, Jesus' power is so great that if he could 
if he could change water into wine, if he could speak and material substances change, he can change anything if he wants to. And he says that to those who are his, he works all things for good, Romans 8, all of them. He is so great and in control and you can trust him and he will bring festive joy and he has the ability because he has the power. And he said to his disciples, now go and make disciples. Go make disciples in Linden, in Fenton, in Swartz Creek, in Grand Blanc, in Flint, in Byron, in Argentine, in Livingston County, Tyrone Township. Go make disciples of all nations in Cameroon, all authority has been given to me. I have power, the very same power that changed the water into wine. Lastly, or thirdly, I want you to see, though, we find here, Jesus suffered and died to bring us this joy. What was Jesus thinking at, the, at this wedding? I want you to think for a minute. What do you think Jesus was thinking as he is invited with his disciples to the wedding? His mom's there, probably a friend of the family, very likely. Well, what was I thinking when I was a single guy when I would go to weddings? When's my wedding going to be? And I'd, th- I'd sit there and go, I wonder what my wedding will be like. Could it be that that's what Jesus was thinking? I think it might have been. No, not a wedding in that Jesus was going to literally marry another person while on earth. But I want you to know what Jesus says when Mary says, they have no wine. Woman, my hour has not yet come. The the Messiah of the Old Testament was known to be a bridegroom. John the Baptist will call Jesus the bridegroom in chapter 3. And in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus himself will say he's the bridegroom. Yet he is disturbed because as he's sitting there, he's thinking and he's with Mary. Mary asks him and says to him, Hey, there's no wine. And Jesus says, woman, my time has not yet come. Did Jesus mean here, woman, it's not time for me to do miracles yet. He doesn't relate to his mom like we might with our moms. No, mom. No, mom. No, mom. All right. You keep asking. No, he says, my hour has not come. Every time Jesus uses that phrase, my hour it refers to his death that is coming. Like in John 20, 27, 12, 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, he prays to the Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Or when Jesus had spoken these words in John 17, he lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the son may glorify you. He he's, knows he's going to the cross to die and to pay for the sins of those who would repent and believe in him. So I think this is what's going on. Mary says to Jesus, no wine, Jesus. Woman, it's not time for me to die yet. He's thinking about another wedding that's gonna come in which he will provide the wine 
but at the cost of his own blood. You know, all this talk about a festive joy that Christians have, it's coming to us. We're going to go to heaven when we die. New heavens and new earth. Glory that's immeasurable. An inheritance undefiled and incredible beyond our imagination. It will not be boring. And in fact, if worshiping Jesus is boring to you, you won't go there. It's for those that love him and worship him with new hearts. But that, that, that celebrative heaven is the result of a cost. Jesus was the bridegroom that paid the cost for that celebration, and the cost was his own blood. On the night he was betrayed, and we say this and we re read this when we take communion, he took a cup full of wine, and when he had given thanks, he said, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, wine, that day when I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. Or to paraphrase Tim Keller, the only way that the bride can fall into Jesus' arms is by the death, his death on the cross. He can only raise the festal cup of celebration if he drinks first of the cup of God's wrath. You see, Jesus Christ goes, Jesus Christ now, early on here, chapter 2, is already in his mind thinking, my hour is to go to the cross. I'm at a wedding. I'm going to provide for the great wedding that God has provided. And that is all the people, all his children who are saved will enjoy a celebration married to Jesus Christ in which we will enjoy joy forever at the cost of the death of Jesus Christ. And so we will worship and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and might and glory and honor and praise forever and ever. And we will rejoice in this lamb, the king, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, so joy is coming to us and his power is immeasurable, but it cost, it cost him his life. He goes to the cross and he dies and he rises again. Everything goes back to the cross and the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And the last point I just want to say to you is receiving Jesus changes everything. Receiving Jesus changes everything. This story ends in verse 11 where it says, this is the first of his signs, which Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Do you believe in him? To believe in him is to trust in him, not just with your mind and be convinced that he really did this. To believe in him is to wholeheartedly trust in him with your life. To say, he is my, I surrender myself to him. I receive him. I am going to follow him. I'm going to obey him. I am no longer my master. He is my master. He has taken and paid for my sin. The end of this gospel, John is going to write these words. Now, Jesus did many other signs. This is the first of the signs. In the presence of his disciples, these disciples believed in him. And in believing in them, they were, in him, they were saved. He says, he did many more of these things which are not written in this book. 
But these are written, including this story in John chapter 2, so that you would believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Oh, do you believe in him? For as many as receive him who believe in his name, he gives right to become children of God who are born not of the blood, by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Oh, friends, may God open our eyes to see this, Jesus. May he help us. If you are here today and you have never received the Son, if you have never believed on the Son, I call you today to see Jesus in John chapter 2 and receive him. Be like the disciples who they saw what Jesus had done. You see what Jesus has done through the written word and believe. This was written so that you would believe and have life in his name and it will change everything. God so loved the world that he gave his son Jesus to die and drink the cup of wrath. His own blood would be the wine that provides the true party of heaven forever. Jesus is the one sacrifice who not only died and wrote, but rose from the dead victorious and is at the right hand. He is king. He is Lord. And so we don't just believe that he was. We believe that he is and we follow him. Let's pray. Father, oh God, I pray that you would help us to look on the sun and believe. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ And I just entrust that you will do your work, and I pray that you would do your work in those here, all of us, that we would see him and savor him. Maybe some for the first time and believe on his name. In Jesus' name, amen.